from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Second offensive possession of the night, moving left to right. Two running backs. The snap to Del Rio. He lobbed the ball to the end zone. Wide open. Quarantine. Touchdown. Antonio Callaway. He's got the first six of the season as the Gators score. Second down three at the UMass 26. Scarlett in the one back set. Here's Del Rio. Swings the pass out here to the receiver. Brandon Powell makes a man miss. Goes down the left sideline. 20, 15, 10, 5. He's in. Brandon Powell on a 26-yarder, and he made a man miss and got into the end zone for the score. Pinheiro in to try about a 48-yarder. He had a 49-yarder the last attempt. Here's the ball on the way, and it is on the board. It's good. Eddie Pinheiro with a hat trick tonight, adding three more to the board with 2.26 to play. Timeout here in the swamp with the score. The Gators 24 and UMass 7. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The swamp lived up to its billing on Saturday as rain poured down in a muggy night at the newly named Steve Spurrier Florida Field. But it didn't stop the full-throated crowd from roaring into the fourth quarter when the Gators pulled away for a 24-7 win over UMass. Next up is Kentucky, and we'll get you set for the SEC opener by learning more about Florida's new kicking rock star, Eddie Pinheiro, getting the latest on the defensive line from assistant coach Chris Rumpf, and hearing Mick Hubert's perspective on Spurrier, the Wildcats, and more. But first, Florida's kicking woes have been well documented the last few years, and Jim McElwain declared immediately after the SEC championship game that he would go find a leg that could deliver. Sure enough, the next day, he was in the Miami home of Eddie Pinheiro, and the rest is history. But what a remarkable history it is, as Pinheiro explained his unlikely journey from being an unknown soccer player to a highly sought-after football recruit. I mean, it's a pretty unique story. I, you know, I was in high school and I was playing soccer and I had you know, scholarships to play soccer and stuff. And then my high school team needed a kicker. So basically, my uh, football coach came to my soccer coach and said, you know, who kicks the hardest on the team? And then at that time, it was me. So I went out and like my first field goal attempt, like to kick a football, I went out with my dad to like just try it. And I hit like a 60 yarder. And I didn't even know like it was a 60 yarder. I thought it was like a 30 or 40 yarder. And then my football coach is like, you know, you just hit a 60 yarder. And I was like, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I've never really, I really don't know too much about football. So and it pretty much took off from there. Like I kicked in high school, but I didn't get any field goal attempts because my team wasn't that good. But I hit extra points and kickoffs. And then I didn't really take it that serious. And then so basically I went to my junior college and the same thing happened. They started a new football program and the junior college was like, oh, do you know anybody that kicks hard? And they're like, oh, yeah, Eddie kicks hard. So I was like, all right, I mean, I, I guess I did it in high school for like four games, five games. Why not like just help them out? You know, at that point I wasn't really taking it serious. So I went back out and... I played a spring game there and I hit like a couple of field goals and I was just practicing with them and stuff and then basically my dad's like listen like you know like in this country because my parents are like Hispanic so like basically like in this country like it's really hard to make it pro in soccer unless you go to like Brazil or Argentina so they think that I had they thought I have a better chance at like 
making it to the next level and kicking, I pretty much like it took off from there. How much of a, a transition was that to becoming a football player? Was it hard for your dad because soccer was so important to him? Uh, the transition wasn't too hard. Like the balls are different, obviously, but I mean, like when I played soccer, like they made me like take like all the penalty kicks and like the free kicks and like those pressure kicks. So like I guess that kind of helped me out in a way. You mentioned some of the struggles your family's gone through. Can you talk about your background before you got here and before everything in terms of sports and how that really shaped where you are today? So I grew up in Miami. Obviously, my parents didn't have too much money. And um, basically, I, you know, I worked in soccer really, really hard to try to get a scholarship because I knew that was the only way that I was going to go to a university. Otherwise, my parents like, didn't have the money to pay for it. So like, I worked really, really hard. And, you know, just like the struggles as in like, you know, waking up at five o'clock in the morning with my dad and I would wake up at five to go kick some footballs at six because the fields are an hour away from my house. I don't have any close football fields by my house. So then I would wake up, kick some footballs. Then my dad would drop me off at school and then he would go to work and then I would go to school for like five or six hours because I was trying to graduate early to be an early enrollee. So I was like five or six hours in school and then I would go to soccer practice after that. And then after soccer practice, my dad would pick me up and then I would go kick some more fo uh, footballs in the, towards like the nighttime where there was a field that had some lights. I did that for like a year. Fans have really responded to your confidence, the swagger that you have, even as someone who, who just came into the program. Where does that come from? Where, where do you feel like you got that from? Um, I think I get the confidence from my dad. You know, my dad's like a really confident guy. And, you know, he taught me to never put pressure on me and like never put pressure on myself and like you know if you just go out there and have fun you know like everything's gonna work out for you and just pray and have fun because that's what he did when he played pro soccer like he he told me like all his teammates would be super pressured and some teammates won't even talk on game days and he was always the guy laughing smiling because at the end of the day you know life is really short so you know just appreciate every moment you have and that's you know that's what I'm doing now just appreciating every moment that I get on the field. When you first started going to these camps and you burst on the scene, you went from being completely unknown to being the number one recruited kicker in the country. How did you adjust to that level of attention and demand? I mean, I adjusted pretty well. I mean, I guess some people let it get to their head, but, like, I was never, you know, taught that way. You know, my, my family taught me to be, you know, a humble person and don't get, like, a big head, as what my dad would say. But, I mean, you know, it's just a blessing, so it was pretty cool. You also became YouTube famous when these long 70-yard field goals started popping up and people were sharing them all over the place. Whose idea was it to even try a 77-yard field goal, and how surprised were you about the response that it got? Basically, um, I was uh, hitting like 60, 65-yard field goals like consistently in practice, and I would have like 10 yards to spare. So basically, my dad's like, hey, like, why don't we try like a 70 or 70 five yarder so I was like yeah why not let's record it and then basically I just hit like a 75 yarder and my dad recorded I'm like hey I'm just gonna post this and like you know see what happens whatever so then I posted it and I didn't know it was gonna blow up like that and it ended up blowing up and then I consistently I consistently try to beat my record like my first one that I posted was 70 then 72 then 75 and then 77 so is there any more? Is, is there something? Is there an eighty coming up, or is, is seventy-seven probably the max? Probably, yeah, seventy-seven <laughs> is probably the max, unless I have like a crazy wind behind me. But that seventy-seven, I didn't have like a crazy wind behind me. So, see, but then the question people always ask with those videos, like trick shot videos, is mm -hmm. well, how many tries did it take before you got the one that everyone saw? How many times did you try seventy-seven before it went through? Twice. That's it. Only twice. Yeah, I think it took me more to 
to hit the 75 yarder took me like more like six tries and then I went out the, the next day like two days later and then I it took me two tries to hit the 77 it was pretty cool so you were committed to Alabama for almost six months. Nick Saban offered you on the spot, then Jim McElwain offered you, but you went with Alabama. What happened over the course of that time that made you change your mind and want to come to Florida? Well, basically, you know, like like I said, uh, my family isn't, like, financially well, so I knew that if I would have gone to Alabama, they weren't going to probably come to any of my games. And, like, family is, like, really important to me, especially my dad. Like, you know, he was always there for me and taking me to camps, and so I wanted him to see all my – as many games as possible and I know knew and go I knew that going to Alabama was gonna you know be tough for my whole family to go up there every other weekend or every weekend to try to see me play so that wasn't gonna happen and I picked my family over anything. When you started kicking in practice and through camp I know that they did all sorts of crazy things to you to simulate pressure because it's a much different thing kicking on a practice field than kicking in the swamp. Can you talk about some of the things that the coaches and the other and your teammates did to help get you ready for that opportunity? Yeah, basically, uh, so in camp, the two weeks of camp, um, we would end practice with, uh, like, the whole players coming around me and just screaming at me and, like, trying to get me off balance and, they, you know, throwing water on my face. I ended up getting Gatorade in one of my eyes. I had to <laughs> kick one with, with my, one of my eyes closed. But, um, yeah, just, you know, trying to get me off balance, trying to get me unfocused to, like, you know, like a pressure kick and stuff, so I thought I thought I reacted pretty good to that. So you wear the same number as a guy who responded pretty well to pressure as well. Were you aware of the Tebow legend when you chose number fifteen, and how'd you come to have that number? Yeah, I mean it's pretty sad. I didn't even know he had number fifteen. <laughs> so they said that there was like a couple of numbers open, and then I went and um, I was like, yeah, I mean I was number fifteen in high school for soccer, my freshman and sophomore year. So I was like, oh, might as well just you know. I was that numbers open, so I just took it, and then I called my dad. I'm like, yeah, dad, you know, I just got number 15. My dad's like, what? And he, like, started screaming. I'm like, why are you screaming? He's like, that's Tim Tebow's number. I was like, damn, for real? He's like, yeah. So then I posted, like, a picture or something that I got number 15, and, like, it blew up on Twitter. That's pretty crazy. So many kickers have mentors that play the game at various levels. They have coaches. Talk about the influences you've had and the other people who've supported you during this process. Basically, um, when I first got here, I was able to train with Caleb Sturges from the Eagles and Cario Santos from the Chiefs. And um, those guys, I mean, I feed off their mind a lot. You know, I speak to them at least once a week and I try to feed off their mind and their mindset, like approaching games and like approaching the kicks and stuff. So like they've helped me out a lot, a lot, a lot. And then, obviously, like, my biggest mentor is obviously my dad because, you know, he's played at the next level in soccer, either, even though it's not in football. But, like, I feel like when you play professional, like, the mindset has to be the same. So, you know, I just, you know, pick off my dad's mind, too, and stuff. So, Kicking can be so hot and cold. Even the best in the country, like Roberto Aguayo, all of a sudden starts going through struggles and people mm -hmm. question his ability. Inevitably, you'll, you'll probably miss a kick at some point. At some point, you'll I'm going to miss a couple right. of kicks. Yeah. So just to, to <laughs> let fans down now, there might yeah, be a few misses. There for sure. <laughs> how will you bounce back from that? And if you do get into a funk, not having gone through this before, how will you work through that? Um, I've actually gone through funks, like you said, like in practice and stuff. Like there was a couple of, like one or two days in camp that I just was off. But that's just normal. Like nobody's perfect, so... I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I'll react to it good because, you know, basically like in the spring game, I made my first two field goals and then I missed a 54-yarder and then 
I bounced back after the 54-yarder. I came back out and hit a 57-yarder right after my miss. So, like, I, th I think that my, like, bounce back is pretty solid, in my opinion. I think everything is mental, too. And if you let it get to you, then you'll just get in a slump, and you don't want to get into a bad slump, so. You graduated from ASA with a degree in criminal justice. Yeah. How do you plan on using that in the future once football and your playing days are over? Uh, I mean, I wanted to become a DEA agent. Um, that's pretty much why I'm studying criminal justice. Yeah. What, what inspired you to, to want to work for the DEA? Um, I mean, I've seen, like, it, this is probably going to be pretty funny. I see, like, a bunch of movies of, like, cops, like, busting, like, these big guys <laughs> of, like, cocaine and, like, marijuana and stuff. So I was like, I don't know. I've always found that interesting when I was a little kid. And, like, there is a lot of drug problems going on in the country and stuff. So it would be pretty cool to catch those guys and try to get as much drugs out of the country as possible. So, Final thing for you expectations for you now sky high you know that you've heard from people yeah. and both inside and outside the program people want you and expect you to do very very well how do you manage those expectations and that pressure coming from both inside and outside the program um i mean i think i manage it pretty well like like i was uh, saying in the some interview the other day that they're interviewing me talking about like how are you managing all this and stuff? Like, I mean, I really don't care. I don't care about the Twitter, about the Instagram and the media and all that stuff. Like, I could care less. All I care about is putting points on the board for Florida, which is something that they didn't do last year in the kicking game. So I'm trying to make as much field goals as possible and try to become as clutch as possible as I possibly can for Florida. Florida has produced a number of NFL talents on the defensive line in recent years, including names like Dominique Easley, Dante Fowler, and Jonathan Bullard. But while the names always change, the expectations for production stay the same. Chris Rumpf is in his second year coaching the D-line for Florida, and he talked to Jeff Cardozo about his young but eager group of pass rushers. Yeah, you know, uh, guys, you know, they bounce around a little bit more. You know, they, they, they know what time it is. They know it's, it's SEC and it's time, you know, that's when we pay the bills. Excited for the guys to, you know, get back and, and play another game in front of the great crowd and uh, sort of get a little nasty taste out of our mouth from the last game. Even though we won, uh, it wasn't up to our standards. So I'm excited to see what happens. So when you say that, up to your standards, what does that mean? No, I just thought, you know, defensively, the penalties are the things that, that stick out the most. Uh, we didn't play clean. Uh, we won the game. And, and if you look at the stat line and all that stuff, it looks good. But uh, deep down inside, the guys know we, we could have played better. And we sort of played down a little bit to their level and didn't have a whole lot of juice. So we, we need to match the intensity of the crowd. You've been doing this uh, almost 20 years now. So do, do you always see a significant difference maybe from game one to game two, and knowing that the guys might uh, change it up a little bit? Oh, definitely. You know, sometimes in that first game, guys got a little, little jitters. They want to. Uh, you know, they're happy to be back and hitting somebody different and, you know, sometimes they get a little overzealous and, and make some mistakes. And hopefully by the second game, they calm down and say, all right, we know the routine, been to the hotel, the escort, the walk. So we, we know what everything's about and, and we're ready to go. When you start to look at Kentucky, they, they got a guy that threw it all over the yard last week, four touchdowns. But it seems like when you look at him on film, maybe a little more athletic than uh, than his body. Oh, no doubt about it, man. You see this guy, and, and, and he's more athletic than I want him to be. You know, this guy's making some plays. He's, you know, scrambling around. Guys are bouncing off of him. He's flipping the ball. He's doing this. So um, we, we have a hands full. When you start to attack a team like that, knowing they like to throw it a lot, is that a good thing, a bad thing, or you just don't know, or just these guys pin their ears back and go get them? 
Well, you know, you you like to say you you will pin your ears back, but when you got a quarterback back there who can run, so you got to be really conscious of your pass rush lanes and you know really pushing the pocket and keeping this guy trapped in there and don't let him get outside the pocket and make a play with this, you know, with his with his feet. You guys certainly lose a couple of big names last year. So when when you went through the the summer workouts and, and the fall camp and you knew what this group was was going to be, how excited are you to coach them this year? I'm excited, man. You know we got some guys that we really shared uh, last year, and some of those guys going to be uh, counted on this year. So and the older guys, you always want to see how much more they develop. Um, you know, coming up the Brantleys, the Cox, and the Sherrys, and all those guys, and the Ivies, and so you're excited for those guys that played a lot of ball. But you know, you want to see the young guys fly around and develop as well. Tell us about some of those young guys. I know uh, Zaniga had a, a couple of sacks there in, in the first game, so it looked like he had a, had a nice day. And then, inevitably, how many guys do you want to rotate in and out throughout the game? Well, you know, I was, I was happy for Zaninga and uh, Cavanis Davis and all those young guys, and it's just happy to see them finally get out there and. You know, fly around, make some plays, and, you know, the stage wasn't too big for them. Um, and, you know, the old heads, they're developing, they're getting better. So we're excited, man. It's, it's a great day to be a Gator. I'm a, I'm a baseball guy, so uh, and, and I know you compared C.C. Jefferson moving him inside a little bit to a, sort, sort of a baseball deal. So I was, I was proud of you for that. So explain that to everybody. You know, he's the big unit. Now, <laughs> you know, uh, C.C. just adds another um, dimension in there. You know, you get these guys and big guys, and they pound and pound, and then all of a sudden you come in with a change up, and now you got a quick guy that's just as strong but has the athletic ability to run around you, go over you. So it, it messes a guy up and. You know, you being a baseball guy, you know, you get a guy, he's throwing 95, 98, and then all of a sudden he the same motion, but he's bringing dog on 80, and now you swing it away, and, you know, you out. So we're trying to throw some out. Change-up's <laughs> best pitch in the game. That's why all those little lefty thumbers were so good for uh, for so long. The, and the, the linebackers, too. I know sometimes you guys up there front don't, don't get all the glory, and then it's the Davis and the Anzalones of the world that are getting all the sacks, but – in order for them to do that, it's your guys probably taking on two guys. Yeah, you know, we, we you know, Coach Shannon and I, we work really close together, and the, the relationship um, of the defensive line and the linebackers are really good, man. You know, it's like, hey, I'm going to take one for you, you make it. You know, they take one for us, we make it. So uh, we love it. We just challenge each other when it's our time to make the play, we got to make the play. You ever have a, uh, a hairdo like Anzalone? You know, nah, my hair wouldn't grow. I had a box, though, back in okay. when I was in high school. I did have a box. It was pretty cool. It looked better than Brian Cox's. Yeah. Higher? Oh, yeah. It was like kid and play back hey, in the day. Hey, there you go. Kid and play with a part and all. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and now year two here for you. Um, obviously, you're coming, becoming more comfortable. You look good in orange and blue now, so that's, uh, that's getting there. How's, how's Gainesville treating you? It's been, really, it's been a blessing, man. It's uh, been really good. You know, for me, I'm all right because I'm down in a little room, you know, with, you know, in the dark watching film or I'm drawing pictures on the card. Um, but my family is the one that's, you know, out in the community a lot. And um, they've been really happy and people see them out, you know, speaking, being kind to them. So uh, it's been really good, man. Really good. Great place. If you guys are uh, going to be victorious, what are some of the things you have to do uh, for, from your position to, uh, to get the W? You know, first thing we can't—we got to play clean. Uh, we can't have the, the foolish penalties, you know, the offsides and the, the, the personal fouls and things like that. We got to stop the run to make them one-dimensional. And I think when it's time for us to rush the passer, we got to do a great job of containing this guy and have great uh, rush lanes. And, and when we have our shots, take our shots. Opening night in the swamp was simultaneously about the now and nostalgia with much fanfare surrounding the renaming of the field in honor of Steve Spurrier. 
Mick Hubert has been the voice of the Gators since Spurrier's very first game as the HBC for the Orange and Blue, and we asked him to reflect on the significance of Saturday night both on and off the gridiron. Well, I think the the number one thing when you're looking at an optimistic standpoint is the fact that there were no turnovers in the game. Uh, that's always important, and I know with Jim McElwain, uh, uh, only half-kiddingly, when he tells his quarterback to make sure you throw it to the team that we're in the same color jersey as we are, he did that. Uh, so as a result, you know, uh, I, I thought he had a, a nice performance. Uh, would have been a lot better, I think, uh, from the, the optics of it. Would have looked a lot better if he hits the first pass of the game. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it brings the people to their feet right away. Okay, here we go. And he adds about 70 yards to his total. He would have been over 300 yards passing, and he just barely missed on that one. Probably, as Lee McGriff said on our broadcast, probably uh, the receiver should have run through it a little bit more and maybe made the catch. So it was really close, uh, but he didn't, didn't happen. So he goes 29 of 44. Uh, I think for the most part he got the guys lined up, and that's one of the things that Jim McElwain said. Hey, the quarterback has got to be able to uh, kind of a- avoid disaster. If a guy breaks the huddle and goes to the wrong spot in the formation, you've got to not panic. You've got to get him over to the right spot, and all the while you're still looking at the defense. There's a lot of things you've got to do. Okay, someone else now is complicating my deal. You've messed up. I got to fix you. Yet I still got to maintain uh, my eye control out here. And so I, I thought he did a lot of those things. Probably four or five throws. He probably wished he'd have had back. And again, we had four or five drops. Uh, I don't think the offensive line uh, was terrible, but it certainly has a long way to go. It has to get better, and I think it will get better. And I think that's what I could generally say, Adam, about the, the ball club is I think this is a good team. The question still remains: Is it going to be good enough? Well, good enough for what? Well, that's part of the equation, too. What's it going to be good enough to do? I mean, last year at this time, I don't think anybody thought they were going to be good enough to win the Eastern Division, and they did that. So uh, those goals are still out there, and I think they can improve a little bit. But, you know, I mean, there's work to be done. I I thought that uh, we probably could run the ball a little bit better, and uh, I think I'm looking to see us run the ball a little bit better on Saturday afternoon. Uh, You know, we – played without five wide receivers and so we got a little thin there at the wide out spot so there were about five guys that uh, you didn't have including Dre Massey who goes out really essentially on the opening kickoff and then he had been really the talk of the preseason how mm-hmm. well he had could play how well how many spots he can play how fast he is and how they were probably going to utilize him so that was a weapon they didn't have at their disposal in that game uh defensively obviously Tabor not being there and then with Dawson getting hurt that put them at a bind a little bit at the corners had to play some younger guys and I think we got burned on a couple of passes and when you look at the the yards that UMass had uh a lot of their yards were on three chunk plays that the Gators made mistakes now you can't take those away but for the most part uh, they did a pretty good job uh, on the other all but about three plays from the line of scrimmage and they really shut them down in the second half and all in all I thought it was a uh, an average performance I don't think it was a bad performance uh, but uh, you know, what what is average I mean I don't know letter grades what, what you would give them uh, a C plus probably uh, I, I think there's room to grow and these we have good coaches here and they're very good coaches mm-hmm. they're going to coach these guys up and we have talent they're going to get better and so from the standpoint of that you know some teams didn't win their first game and uh, so the SEC kind of took a little hit here. So the, the deal is, you know, win. And that's exactly what the Gators did in, in week one. Now, obviously, you're looking for improvement coming up in the second game. 
Well, I got some help winning from Eddie Pinheiro, a guy that we haven't talked about yet, but we had a chance to speak to him earlier in the podcast. And a really delightful guy, I think is the best way to put it. He appreciates the opportunity he has, and he's just got... He's got so much passion, and that, that's one of the things that I noticed. And it's not just because the number 15, but the way that he came out and performed with the hype level and then the response from the student section chanting his name, it, it reminded me of being in the Swamp in 06 when Tebow came out, and there was such a legend to live up to before he even played, and then obviously lived up to that and then some. Yeah, I, I, you can draw a comparison to, to the excitement of the fact that you know, he's wearing 15 and he got the crowd going. And uh, although Tim Tebow as a quarterback had his hand on the ball almost every play, was involved in, you know, 70, 80 plays a game. Mm-hmm. And, and Pinero's going to be involved in a handful of plays a game. We saw all too unfortunately last year what those handfuls of plays, how it can deflate the balloon. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you can't, you know, get any points. And we had some drives last year, particularly in the second half of the season, where we had three or four first downs. And uh, we had uh, six or seven minutes time of possession. And we got down to the 25-yard line and couldn't hit a 42-yard field goal. And that really, that's what I'm talking about, deflating the whole balloon. It deflates the offense and the defense who's, who's played so well. They're hoping to get those three points. We'd like to get a touchdown, but at least, hey, guys, give us the three. Give us the field goal. We don't get that. Now we got to run back out there again. And you, you saw that. You saw how the productivity of the defense declined over the course of a game by the fourth quarter when they were out there so often with really not a lot of hope that the offense were going to put points on the board. So having Eddie Pinheiro last week hit all four of his field goals, and it's one of those oddities where a team took points off the board. His mm-hmm. first one never counted, but he was four for four on his kicks, and he had three that went 40 yards or more. Very similar to what we saw in the spring game. Uh, a lot fewer people there and a lot less pressure, but all he does in the spring game is go out and hit three 50-yard field goals. And I think the way he hit the ball the other night, if those had have been 50-plus, I think he hit all three of those because he didn't barely just squirrel a couple across the over the crossbar, you know, he, he kicked them. And some of his kickoffs, they, they challenged him a little bit. Some of his kickoffs were high, and they tried to get hang time on him. Others were just like, go ahead and just hit a rocket and hit it out through the end zone for touchback. So I thought he was perfect in what they asked him to do. And it was a part of the special teams. I thought the special teams play was the best of the night because Johnny Townsend Mm -hmm. uh, kicked the ball well. He had some good distance kicks. He had some placement kicks. I thought our coverage was pretty good. So I thought special teams was clearly the star of the performance of last Saturday's game with with Eddie Pinheiro highlighting it. And obviously you don't want to have a guy that's going out kicking three field goals a game because that's four points lost (laughs) every time. That's 12 points you didn't get. And in some games that could cost you. You know, when I look back at the game, obviously, again, what I didn't mention in, in, in the first comment was the fact that, you know, we, we, we had a little bit of a bust on, an, on the offensive line on a fourth and one at the five or six-yard line and didn't get it. Mark Thompson didn't get it. It wasn't his fault. He was hitting the backfield. He really had no chance mm-hmm. to get that play. You've got to make that first down. You make that first down, your first and goal, you're, you're going to score. The point that they got, their seven points that they got, was was aided greatly by the Gators, maybe over-aggressiveness. You know, you could call it a little lack of focus or whatever, but the little lack of discipline, whatever. It was three penalties, which allowed them 35 yards, which kept their drive alive. So if, if, you, don't do, if you don't hand them essentially half their drive via penalties, the score should have been 31 nothing. Now, that's still not maybe what people thought they were expecting, but they were really close to being 31 nothing. I mean, I don't think there's going to be too many times 
when Mark Thompson's not going to make fourth and one, but it happened in game one. I think we'll see more of Mark Thompson Saturday because uh, I, I know we'll talk about that a little later, but the one key I look at, at Kentucky, they're not strong on the defensive line. The Gators should be able to run the ball with a big, strong back like Thompson. I think he's got a chance on Saturday to showcase more of his talents. Before we get to Kentucky, I'm curious for some of your thoughts on, on other debuts. Because Pinheiro, I, I understand it's lofty to compare it to Tebow. I'm not saying he's Tim Tebow, but just in terms of the energy and the anticipation, in my time here, that's someone I thought of. Is there anyone else you can think of in terms of a debut that had a lot of hype and then went out there and backed it up? That's really hard to say. I, I don't know that anybody really comes to mind like that. Uh, because when you look, for example, like at uh, Shane Matthews, I mean, uh, uh, Shane goes from fifth or sixth string in the spring game of 1990 to become the starting quarterback in 1990. So you didn't expect you didn't have high expectations for that position when we opened up in Spurrier's first game. And obviously Spurrier overshadowed any player uh, in that first <laughs> game. And they won 50-7. to seven. Then Shane comes back in 91, leads us to the first official SEC championship, but now he's a senior in 1992. Again, you, you know, you know, it, it, the Gators were a very young club in 92, so they started two true freshmen at tackle. So the expectations were kind of muted, and it was one of Spurrier's youngest teams, and and uh, and yet Shane was the SEC quarterback of the year. And then you look ahead to Danny Werfel, and even when Danny became a uh, a senior in 96, I don't know that the expectations for him were off the charts because mm-hmm. he was surrounded with great receivers. Ike Riedel, Quizzy, and Chris Doring, I mean, they all, all through that time, they, they were unbelievable. So uh, Danny was a very good quarterback. But those other guys around him with that offensive line we had, and those receivers, uh, they helped Danny win that Heisman Trophy. So uh, I, I don't know from an offensive standpoint uh, – you know, uh, if there was any expectations like they expected to see from mm-hmm. Pinheiro because the word was out. And so now a lot of people who didn't see the spring game are actually seeing him kick as we were actually all of us seeing him kick in an official game for the first time. So he didn't disappoint in that in that aspect at all. And uh, he did bring the intangible part of that to it, uh, the excitement level. And uh, it's, obviously it's it's easy to be excited when you're, when you're kicking the ball like he is. Sure. When, you, when you have success, all of a sudden you feel a little bit better. Now, if he duck hooks his first kick, he might have made the rest of them. But what's he going to be like mm-hmm. after – is he going to hang his head after he missed that opening kick? Well, he hasn't missed one yet, so we'll see how he, how he goes out the next game. Well, it's interesting, too, just talking about anticipation of debuts and players coming on the scene. It almost seems like it's a different era now because of social media, because Eddie Pinheiro had a 77-yard field goal on YouTube. There was no YouTube in the 90s, the era you're talking about. So maybe to, to some extent, the idea of matching the hype is a new concept because back then there wasn't hype to be had. There weren't recruiting services, publishing things every day. I mean, it really is almost a different time in terms of anticipation. Yeah, I think so, because even when the Gators uh, back in the 80s, when they signed Emmett Smith, I mean, you got to recall, Emmett was, a, was an outstanding high school player, but he was one that they still said was too too small and too slow, mm-hmm. and Emmett battled that all during his career. So Emmett leaves after his junior year as one of the, if not the greatest running back in Gator history, so right there at the top of the charts, you know. So and he goes off and, and – and has a great NFL career, goes in the NFL Hall of Fame. But nobody nobody was expecting him when he blew onto the scene and had the big game, you know, over in uh, Birmingham when he ran at Legion Field for the big his breakout performance. So uh, even a guy as great as Emmett Smith didn't have the hype. So you're right about that. It's a totally different era right now in terms of, uh, you know, that social media and, and people getting a look and see at these players uh, like you never had even 10 years ago, let alone 20 or 30. 
And given the era we're in, there's even more focus on numbers. And the Kentucky series continues to be just this automatic notch in Florida's column almost. But Kentucky's gotten a little bit closer the last few years. It's amazing. Yeah, really. I mean, now the last two years, I think the outcomes have been decided by 11 points. Uh, we go triple overtime to beat them by six in the Swamp in 2014. And then last year, I didn't think that we were in any danger of losing the game. I really did not. And yet, we're one mistake away from mm-hmm. going behind winning out 14 to 9 is the final score in the game but I thought we controlled the game but still at the end it's a five point game so 11 points the last two times yes they're getting closer uh but you know there's a a psychological hurdle that that they have that teams have to get over there's every team has that certain certain aspect you know certainly last year Tennessee battled at trying to hold leads in the fourth quarter mm-hmm. they they couldn't close out games so that was their Achilles heel and Kentucky's is the fact that uh, you know they couldn't stand a little prosperity you know the last two seasons i think 5 and 1 4 and 2 and neither of those two years have they won a bowl, have they got to a bowl game. So, you know, it's unlikely they're going to have that fast start this year because they're coming into the swamp already 0-1. So there's pressure on them, and yet they, they, they go into a – they go in and play a team that, uh, by looking at it, as Jim McElwain has said, that Kentucky probably feels they've got every chance to beat Florida based on what they're seeing on film from what Florida did on Saturday night against UMass. But then they've got that mental block. It's the Gators. And, uh, you know, nobody alive wearing a Kentucky uniform has ever had a win. I mean, you got to go back to 1986 for that to, to last time. The I Kentucky wasn't alive won. when Kentucky had a win <laughs> there over you Florida. Go. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's been some major blowouts, too. You know, it, that's why this is an interesting game Saturday because obviously both teams will be hungry. Kentucky wants to avoid 0-2, wants to snap the streak. Kentucky's defense uh, gives up 44 points to a Southern Miss team that I don't – I think their Southern Miss is a good offense, but I don't know that they're a great offense. And Kentucky with a Mark Stoops as a defensive guy coaching their team, and they mm-hmm. give up 44. Uh, the Gators could only score two touchdowns against UMass. So are they going to break out? Are they going to put it all together? Uh, I mean, uh, th- that's what's interesting to see. I mean, sure, the Gators are capable of going out there and hanging 40-plus on Kentucky, but – you know, I mean, you've got to you've got to score. You got to sustain drives. You know, when you put together a nice drive, you got to get something. And in in the case of, you know, that that drive last Saturday night, that they got nothing because they end up taking those points off the board. So, I think that the Gators uh, will be able to run on Kentucky. You should be able to get over a hundred yards rushing, maybe over a hundred and fifty. Uh, so, I think that's a key stat. Uh, Kentucky's corners are big, and fast, and they're good. Their secondary is pretty good. So, this is a challenge for our receivers to try and get open. Uh, I have confidence in, in Del Rio and being able to see the field and make the right decisions. I thought he was very good last week in checking down. I mean, there, I mean, uh, a lot of people uh, complained about the ball not going down the field. I understand that. But by the same token, when, when they're throwing those hitch passes out there, those little screens on the sideline, uh, that's what was open. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially kind of like a running play. So when you look at 44 to 29, you, you know, seven or eight of those are really kind of essentially runs. It's very similar to – Last Monday night, the way Florida State used Dalvin Cook, he, he wasn't running the ball very just well against Ole Miss. He checked him down. Yeah. He was out there, and, and he was a very effective receiver. And uh, Mark Thompson dropped a ball or two on passes last week that I don't think he'll, he'll drop this week because I think you get him, you get the ball in his hands either via that little swing pass or or something on a check down. He he can be very effective, but I also think he can be effective just just out of the running back spot, coming out of the shoot. And that's why I'm interested to see can our offensive line uh, take over and control. Uh, we'll see if they, if they can do that. 
something else that was really unique about the opener was the renaming of the field, Steve Spurrier, Florida Field at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. What was your perspective on it, knowing your history with Spurrier and, and seeing that come to fruition? Well, I thought the University Athletic Association just hit a home run uh, with the promotion and the production uh, of Saturday night in the swamp. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And what was also uh, vintage Spurrier is the fact that when Steve was on the field in the pregame and when he was on the field at halftime, it never rained. But as soon as the game started, the rain fell. And that kind of symbolic of things the way things were around here. It was always a sunny day. And as Steve said many a time, God shines on the gators. Mm-hmm. And, and Steve had a, had a way of everything he touched turned to gold. And uh, we, we rode that wave. And I thought he was phenomenal on the field. Uh, there was a buzz and excitement that went back 20 years when he was coaching on the sideline. You know, so I thought it was very well done. I know he thoroughly enjoyed himself. And, you know, I, I was blessed to emcee the reception over at the Wrights Union last Saturday afternoon. and Saw a lot of people I hadn't seen in a long time that had come back and was able to introduce, you know, uh, Steve as well as Jeremy and, and Danny and Shane. And it was, it was a great – it was great. And so when you look back upon it, you know, it was almost like the game was almost going to be anticlimactic. It was going to be almost secondary sure. to, to all the, the festivities of, of, around. And, you know, to have him, the field named after him, what, what a great honor and how fitting it is because, uh, you know, as I've said a lot here in the last week or so, it was Steve that gave the Swamp its name as well as its swagger. So fitting that now the place is named Steve Spurrier Field. And, uh, you know, it, it's great because he treated me with such great respect over the years. I, as I said, when he came in, it was my second year. I'd only been here a few months having just completed the 1989 season. So he came in and we met one another. And right out of the gate, he gave me the utmost respect. Never embarrassed me on the air when there were probably a couple of times he could have. <laughs> uh, but we had a great relationship. He, uh, you know, if, if he got himself to the edge of the plank, so to speak, I never pushed him off, and if I got to the edge of the plank, he always reached out and pulled me back. He didn't push me off either. Neither one of us threw any one of them under the bus. And so uh, and Steve would always tell me, Mick, this is our 43rd broadcast. Mick, this is our 87th broadcast. Mick, you know, this is 110 broadcast tonight. We did hundreds of them from the radio pregame show to the Thursday call-in show to the Sunday breakfast with the Gators television show, and he was just a delight to work with. And he was so instrumental in – helping me establish my career as the voice of the Gators. Uh, so I, I owe him a lot, and I'm just thrilled that he's back. And uh, I, I know a lot of Steve Spurrier's X's and O's, his tangibles, his intangibles, all of that will rub off on the program. Coaching staff, players, mm-hmm. and it's nothing but it's all good. Do you remember the final number? Did he ever give you the final number of – combined broadcast you did between all those various things no and i don't have a number i'd ha- I have to kind of look it up because <laughs> would he know it if you walked over there right now and I, asked him and he know? might he because might know. you know he sits over there in that office over there <laughs> and he said mick i got a lot of time i'm figuring out a lot of stats <laughs> and uh, i think he was the one that uh, he's the one that told told shane and then it mentioned it to me at the practice he said you know he said shane was probably the only player in the history of the swamp never lost a game I don't know if Shane even realized that. He wow. went 6-0, 6-0, He went 18-0 in the Swamp during a part of that long winning streak. So he says, I don't know if any other players 18-0 in the Swamp. So Steve figuring all that stuff He's out. He's got he, time to look it up now. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> might, he might exactly know. Uh, the thing about it was because when we beat Maryland in the, uh, in the bowl game, the Orange Bowl down there, beat them bad. I think we had 56 points or something, and that's why I said that the Gators had made uh, they'd made turtle soup out of the Terrapins <laughs> that game. Well, when the game was over, we didn't realize. 
That sure. was his last that game. Was the end. So we didn't really know that we had a final show. We we didn't know when the final show was, but it it, it turned out it had been before that. So uh, that was kind of a sad sad moment for us when when he decided to leave and and go on into the NFL. But uh, yeah, there was some great. It was a great twelve year run, and uh, you know uh, it's interesting that someone told me that. That Norm Carlson, uh, who goes back with Steve well well back into the 60s, you know, and, and Norm had said that it, when Steve was here, it was, it was Camelot. And when someone told me that, I said, you know, that's exactly the word I used. Uh, and I, I, I put it in a, in a reference, Adam, of for me, when, when Steve was here and Billy Donovan was here and Andy Lopez was here, those three head coaches of football, basketball, and baseball, they were all here for about a five-year period from about 96, 97 to about 01, somewhere in that span. That was pure Camelot for me as an announcer, getting to go from the football coach, the basketball coach, to the baseball coach, mm-hmm. and all three of these class guys all here at one time. Uh, and, and really all three Hall of Famers uh, in their own right, in their own sports by you know, looking up the record book. That's not, that's not me saying that. The record book dictates that. So uh, that, was a, that was a Camelot era for sure. And that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, we want your feedback to learn more about what you want to hear. So please feel free to tweet at Gators Podcast or email GatorsPodcast at gmail.com to share your thoughts and suggestions. In the meantime, make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to make sure you never miss an episode, including a special edition dedicated entirely to the career of Jeremy Foley, which is coming your way very soon. Florida and Kentucky square off at 3.30 on Saturday, live on CBS. And of course, you can also hear Mick and Lee on the Gator IMG Sports Network. So until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.